Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Bookburners. Season 4, Episode 18. Who's hungry? Asante said. The apartment didn't seem big enough to Manchu to hold everyone, but it did. Asante's family was all there. Well, almost all there, Asante said. Her children, all adults, talking and bickering. Her grandchildren were possessed of the same wildness and wisdom as the grandmother. Asante and one of her sons were in the kitchen, banging pots and pans around, getting ready to serve. The chatter in the air was in three different languages. It smells delicious, Manchu said. No, it doesn't, said a boy next to him. It's Patrice, yes, Manchu said. Yeah. How old are you, Patrice? Nine. And why doesn't it smell delicious to you, Manchu said. Because they don't eat meat. It's mean to kill animals. Who told you that, Manchu said. No one told me, I just think so, Patrice said. It's mean to kill them, and it's mean to keep them on farms. They should be running free in the woods. I see, Manchu said. It's mean to eat plants, too, Patrice said, but it's less mean. Because plants don't have brains. Yes, they do, Patrice said. Now, who told you that, Manchu said. No one, Patrice said, a little annoyed. I just think so. The plants have brains, but not the same as animals. Their brains are in the ground, so when you eat an animal, you kill the whole thing. When you eat a plant, it's like cutting off a finger, except that plants can grow the finger back. What if you killed the whole plant, Manchu said. That's silly, Patrice said. You can't. Manchu liked this kid. It had been a while since he'd talked to any kids, at least kids who weren't in danger, and he'd forgotten how much he enjoyed it. He loved their free-ranging sense of imagination, the unorthodox thinking that bordered on dream logic, or, Manchu realized to himself, magic logic. He would bet good money that kids were better than adults at handling the changes magic had wrought in the world. He could believe they were less confused, less angry and sad, more accepting. And part of it was because they still believed in fairy tales. It was easier to accept a dragon entering the real world if you thought they'd never left, that they were always hiding or invisible or sleeping, which, as it turns out, was closer to the truth than adults would give them credit for. But that wasn't all of it. It was also that they could handle a new way of thinking thrown at them, create a new system of logic, or just handle a world where a word like logic seemed quaint, almost anachronistic. Adults could spend years looking backward at what they'd lost. 
Kids could just go along for the ride. But talking to Patrice touched on something more fundamental for Manchu, too. When he was a parish priest, he thought of the kids in his church as part of his flock, along with their parents. He was apart from them, their religious guide, their counselor, their consoler. Now the priesthood was falling away from him. He was moving to another mental space, a space he had yet to understand or define. And for the first time in his life, he found himself thinking about how it would be to have a child of his own. He couldn't picture this child. It was without name or gender. It was just an idea in the shape of a child. But it was there. If he concentrated, he thought he could almost hear this child's voice asking him a question he didn't yet know how to answer, but he wanted to. The family was sitting down, the food was on the table, and Asante's phone rang. She checked the number, shot Manchu a concerned look, and walked into the kitchen. Manchu followed her. She was almost done with the call by the time he got in there. We'll be there, she said. Who was that? Daniel, Asante said. That interesting young man from the archives? He has troubling news. Team One has been called out on a mission halfway around the world. Did the Oracle say anything about that mission? No, Asante said. If we believe the Oracle, then this may be part of the attack on the Vatican, Manchu said. A diversion, Asante said. It could be. Sal walked in. She'd seen the looks on Manchu and Asante's faces. Asante explained. Is Fox taking this seriously? Sal said. Yes, Asante said. He's called all his personnel to the Vatican. He thinks they'll be safer there. So they can be found and slaughtered in one place, Sal said. Better than found and slaughtered in their homes or in the street. Along with their friends, families, and anyone else who gets in the way, Asante said. Even after everything we've seen, there's no safer place for them than the archives. Still, Sal said. Yes, Manchu said. We have to go, Sal said. Asante looked at the dinner on the table, her children and grandchildren gathered around. They were waiting for her to sit down, but they didn't really need her. The family, Menchu thought, could wait. Three. The book burners arrived at the archives to find them on lockdown. They were all there, Fox, Danyo, the rest of the essential staff of the society. Sansoni was giving instructions, calm and deliberate an old pro. It is not comforting to know that we are under personal attack. Nevertheless, our strength lies in unity. We have the best chance together. Then why did you send out Team One? One of the monks asked. They have a job to do, Fox said, and we don't know for certain that the Oracle's vision and this attack halfway around the world are related. Maybe they've effectively divided us already, Danya said. But we can't sacrifice a small city in India to find out, can we? Sansoni said. Team One is where they need to be, and we've taken all the precautions we can. She nodded to the ten Swiss guards stationed with them. Sal saw that they looked relaxed, like they'd done this sort of thing before. Her eyes drifted to their weapons. Not medieval weaponry, not guns either. I was waiting for you to notice, Fox said to Sal. Perhaps the time for a Team 3 has ended, but we found that we have use, in essence, for two of Team 1. That was when Sal started to feel better. 
then chastised herself. She knew not to get her hopes up. Fox's phone rang. The voice on the other end was terse. Thank you, Fox said. All clear, he said. How long do we have to stay here? Another monk said. Until we think you're safe, Fox said. And when do we know that? The monk said. Fox glared at him. This is an active situation, he said. Right now, you can't find the answer in a book. The monk fell silent. Fox's phone rang again for another report. Two of the monks tried to busy themselves with a card game, but they were too distracted. Daniel paced the floor. The Swiss guards shifted their positions. Fox's phone rang again. Fox, he said. Sal was close enough to hear that the voice on the other end wasn't calm anymore. It had the tone of rising panic, as if the speaker were watching a tsunami bear down on him. Then there was a rush of noise that subsided. Overhead, they heard a shuddering sound. They're here, Fox said. The lights went out. Some emergency generator kicked in and the lights flicked back on. Then they fizzled out again. For a second, it was completely dark, quiet, and airless. Nothing for Sal to hear but the ringing in her ears. How did they cut the emergency power? She heard Sansoni say. Magic? Fox said. A light blazed on from someone's phone. Another phone. Another. Then a green light fired from the ends of wands the Swiss guard had placed in their hats. Even in her keyed up state, Sal had time for a thought. That looks ridiculous. But it was effective. They could all see each other's worried faces and gathered a little closer together. Sal felt Grace's hand slip into her free hand. She tightened her grip on her sword. The space above them was in darkness, and from there, there was a long screech. Human voices shouting, bangs and shudders, a series of howls. There was a wrenching moan from the top of the stairs that everyone knew was the door being pulled off its hinges. Then a soft purring. Kill the lights, Fox said. Kill the shapes fell out of the gloom above them, voices rising in what sounded to Sal too much like laughter. The next few seconds fragmented Sal's senses. Flashes of light, the faces of a Swiss guard screaming in terror. The curve of a scaly limb. A shriek that overloaded her ears. A stabbing stench. Human blood mixed with tar. The floor beneath her feet was slicker than it had been a second ago. Grace's hands slipped from Sal's. Something grabbed her from behind, snaked around her waist. Sal raised her sword. It was getting easier and easier to use it. She knew she could strike where she wanted without hurting herself. She brought the blade down and severed whatever it was that was holding her. But there were two more, one around a leg, the other around her torso. A third went straight for the wrist holding the sword. They tightened their grip and began to pull in opposite directions, as if they were looking to tear her in half. She fought them, screaming, not in terror, but in anger. She was not going to go this way. She kicked her leg free, but it was caught again almost immediately. She felt something move in her hip socket in a way that felt ominous and fought back harder. In the murky, blinking light, she could see the monster that had her, a bulb of a thing with a huge mouth and more flailing appendages. The shadow of something hung from its teeth. She realized it was a human forearm, a drooping hand. 
That was not happening to her, she thought, and thrashed again, harder still. She could hold it off, but she didn't know how much longer. Then a shape landed on the monster that wanted to consume her, dug its hands into the monster's flesh, and started pulling the appendages off with slick, popping sounds. One, two. The monster squealed and lurched, throwing Sal to the ground without letting go. She couldn't see for a second, only heard the squeal arc into a shriek as the wet, popping sounds continued. Then there was a tearing sound, a piercing cry. Sal turned to see that the monster's mouth was twice as wide as it used to be, and it was flapping around, spraying dark liquid on itself, on the floor, on her. Grace was on top of it, punching straight into its flesh. Her arm was a blur, a jackhammer, and she was boring a hole into where it seemed the monster's brain should be. Grace must have suddenly pulverized something important, because at once the creature stopped moving and slid onto the floor. The arms that gripped Sal went slack. She shuffled them off her and stood up. Grace, covered in gore, shot Sal an intense look full of emotions, and Sal could read every one. No fucking way that was happening, Grace said. She jumped down and took Sal's hand. Come on, let's kill some more monsters. Sal nodded. There was a demon with its back to them, looking like it was about to eat one of the Swiss guards. They lunged forward together and were taking it apart when they heard Fox's call to flee. Fox realized his tactical error as soon as the demons began to fall from the ceiling. He had been thinking of the society as a fortress for years. It had been breached, of course, but that was only once and for something very specific, and the breach had ultimately failed in that the perpetrators had been punished, the society rebuilt. Surely the word had gotten out among the demons that the society was ready for them, one of the last places on earth they would want to be. As the lights on the Swiss Guard helmets began to go out, he realized that he had been right in a small way and wrong in a big way. The demons had indeed learned that the society was not something to assault lightly, so they were assaulting it heavily. And once the demons were inside, the society wasn't a fortress. It was a cage. He had learned a long time ago how to pull his weight in a fight while keeping his head about him to shout orders, and he could do it now. Together, he and three Swiss guards teamed up and brought a demon to the ground long enough for one of the guards to make a mash of the demon's head with a mace he'd brought out of the archives. That gave Fox hope. But a second later, that same guard was eviscerated, the mace lost in the darkness around his feet. A claw raked across Fox's side, cutting deep. Only an intervention by Grace, blurring like the wings of a hummingbird, saved all of them from death. The fight had only been on for 30 seconds, but Fox could see which way it was going. Even if they prevailed, the casualties would be high. Where they were now was too much to the demon's advantage. It was time to fall back, split up, and see what could be done. He gave the order, turned, and ran toward his office. Someone was running behind him, but he couldn't tell who. The monster's howls receded, and for a few seconds, there was only the sound of his own breath, a ringing in his ears from the blood rushing into them. As he sprinted through the dim hallways, he knew so well. So, apparently, did the person behind him. He wondered who it was. They were already at the door to his office. He flung it open, jumped inside, let his follower in, then closed it. The lights didn't work. But the other person, amazingly, still had his phone. He turned on the light, and Fox saw who it was. I didn't imagine someone like you making it out of there, Fox said. What is that supposed to mean? Liam said. 
Fox raised an eyebrow. He thought about fighting with Liam about it, but then realized Liam had a point. Besides, the man was covered in demon blood. He hadn't gotten out of the library by hiding. All right, Fox said. I guess you've done this sort of thing before. Run from monsters, Liam said. Fox could hear the defensiveness in his voice. No, survive demon attacks, Fox said. Liam settled down. Are you hurt? Fox said. No. Liam glanced at Fox's side. That looks bad, he said. It is, he said, but I'll live. He tried hard to sell that last line, but was pretty sure Liam knew he was lying. So what do you do next, he said. This isn't a good position we're in, Liam said. Fox reached under his desk, allowed himself a moment to enjoy the look on Liam's face as he unsheathed the long, gleaming blade he kept there. Well, that makes it a little better, Liam said. But why didn't you have it with you before? It stung, but Fox knew he deserved it. I didn't think we'd need it, he said and meant it. Sorry, Liam said. Not as sorry as I am, Fox said. There was a howl from the hallway, rough breaths. Don't kill the light, Fox whispered. But Liam whispered back. Fox made a decision. It's going to find us anyway, he whispered. He motioned Liam against the wall, gestured for him to shine the light on the door. Liam understood. From the breathing in the hallway, Fox could tell the monster had stopped. He heard air being drawn in through a wet cavity. The monster could smell them. He leaned forward, bracing himself with his back legs, sword pointed toward the door. He rehearsed in his head the move he would make. If he was going to end up in the belly of the beast one way or the other, it was going to be on his terms. Kelshamox felt a rising, pleasurable anticipation. The humans on the other side of the door were more or less intact. They still had most of their blood in them. He liked their organs best when they were still full of blood. He had eaten three humans already here, of different shapes and sizes. Two were soldiers. He found he disliked the taste of their colorful uniforms, and the flesh beneath them was a little tough. They had exercised too much to be considered a delicacy. The third human, the one with the big glasses, had been delectable. Easy to catch, small and soft, sweet, really. More like dessert than dinner. He wasn't sure he'd enjoyed a human more than he had that one. He prepared himself to lower his expectations. The door snapped in half right down the middle when Kelshamox barreled into it. He went in mouth open, slavering. He couldn't wait to eat more. So he was surprised when the only human he saw, an older man with rage in his face, leapt toward him as soon as the door was gone. He didn't even see the sword coming. But then the man and the blade were in his mouth. His two tongues tasted almost nothing but his own blood. It was nauseating. Then Kelshamox experienced a pain he'd never known before, nerves that had never been touched, as the sword blade pierced the roof of his mouth and drove upward into his demon brain. His mind reeled with it. He felt open and cold, split down the middle. It was only the beginning, as the human then twisted and turned the sword, mixing the brains above him into a porridge. In the demon's last thoughts, he bit down hard, 
and was pleased to feel the sensation of soft flesh of a spinal cord severed. He was almost sure he'd bitten the old man in half. But the demon blood on the man's clothes, his own blood and cranial fluid now pouring out of his head and into his mouth, bathing his tongues before sliding down his own throat, was too much to bear. He vomited, vomited everything, the humans he had just eaten, the humans he had eaten earlier. He had always imagined he would die bloated with meat, surrounded by his demon slaves. In his ripest fantasies, he died because he ate too much and exploded under the pressure, a glorious demise. But now he was dying on earth, in a dark room, and his stomach was completely empty. Where did I go wrong? He had a chance to think. Where did I go wrong? We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072. And the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Sal could hear the howls of the beasts around her echoing through the halls of the society. She and Grace walked side by side, hand in hand. Her sword felt better than ever, a salve to the adrenaline and fear. Fox's office is here, Grace said. What's that smell? Sal said. They stepped into the room. There was Liam sitting against the far wall in the dark, sword in hand. Am I ever glad to see you? Liam said. What happened here? Sal said. Don't ask, Liam said. Fox? Grace said. Liam gestured toward the carnage near the doorway, the pile of limbs. What about the others? I don't know. I was hoping you did. If I had to guess, Liam said, I'd say Asante found her way back into the vaults. You think she could still get in there? 
Sal said. It probably didn't change the locks when we left, Liam said. Grace nodded. Good point. From somewhere close by, they heard a scream in the dark. Another man being eaten alive. Sal had never heard anything like it before. Wasn't going to be able to forget it now. Begging your pardon, Liam said, but I don't think anyone who's still in the vicinity of the archives could be alive. Where else would Asante be? Sal said. Liam thought for a minute, shook his head. I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is, I think we may be all that's left. It's just us and those monsters now. That can't be true, Sal said. It most certainly can be, Liam said. Grace didn't say anything. Somewhere farther away, someone else started screaming. Are you saying that we should just find our way out of here then? Leave them for dead, Sal said. What? Liam looked offended. No, what I'm saying is that we have to find out what happened to them. Then it's either rescue or revenge. He hefted Fox's sword. Right now, either one suits me fine. Sal remembered all over again why she liked him. Keep the light low, Asante said to Menchu. I can do this myself. Menchu was holding one candle high over his head, watching Asante scurry from shelf to shelf in the vault of the archives. He counted his blessings that it was Asante who had overseen the reconstruction of the vaults after the first attack, Asante who had organized them. Their replacements had done so little. Everything was as she'd left it. In the chaos, when Fox gave the order to scatter, she'd grabbed his wrist and headed straight for the vault's door, opened it just enough for them to slip in. They allowed themselves one more peek backward to see if there was anyone else they could save. They saw only monsters attacking, rending, devouring, and closed the door behind them. They were safe in the vaults for the moment, they thought, as long as they didn't draw too much attention to themselves. They were also trapped. I know so much more now, Asante said quietly. The things I could do if we were still here. Though, of course, it's because of the things you were doing that we left, Menchu said. Don't remind me, Asante said. They heard a thud from somewhere through the walls, a muffled groan. Their banter seemed disrespectful. People were dying all around them. Though maybe the talking was just the thing to allow Asante to do her work. She had retrieved a long crystal from a drawer along with a metal device shaped somewhat like a horn. Now she was poring over three different books at once. Do you think the others made it? Menchu said. Sal and Grace? Asante said. I'd count on the two of them. What about Liam? Asante looked up at him and said nothing, then returned to the books. I am so proud of them all, Menchu said. Everything they've become. Not to state the obvious, but you sound like their father, Asante said. It feels that way sometimes, Menchu said. Grandfather, even. Oh, you've still got some life in you. And you know they think the world of you, Asante said. So do I, for that matter, in case I didn't tell you enough. She turned the page. What are you going to do? See this crystal, she said. It's something I was tinkering with when I left. It has a way of activating magic. Um, magical creatures, magical objects, exciting them, making things a bit frantic. And this, Asante said, pointing at the horn on the desk, will amplify the effect. 
We want to do that, Manchu said. I'm not going for loading the demons up with magic, Asante said. I'm going for overloading them. Them and anything magic within Rome's city limits. You want to fry the wires, Manchu said. In a manner of speaking, I think we'll have to finish them off afterward, but it will do. And what about Grace? Will it affect her too? Probably, Asante said. But I think she's strong enough to take it. You think? Manchu said. Arturo, she said. I don't have any better ideas at the moment. Manchu sighed. All right, he said. Grace is going to kill you. Better her than them, Asante said. And it might still be them. The demons will sense what I'm doing as soon as I start. They'll know someone's in here, and they'll come for us. You designed those doors to keep them out, didn't you? Not so many of them, Asante said. Manchu nodded. Do it. Asante flipped another book open, held her hands aloft. I told Fox I'm leaving the priesthood, Manchu said. Is that your way of flirting with me, if my idea fails? No, Manchu said. Good, Asante said, because I'm pretty sure it's going to work. She began to chant. The crystal sparked with light. All around them, they heard a howl taken up by one voice after another, rising and falling together. Asante was right. The demons knew. Four. What on earth is happening? Liam said. The voices were all around them, much louder than Sal would have liked. Whatever it is, I think it means our time is running out, Grace said. Do we blow our cover? Sal said. They've been trying to be quiet. I'm not sure we ever had it. All right, then, Sal said. They broke into a run back to the archives. It wasn't fast enough. They heard the rapid steps of feet behind them, too rapid to be human. They stopped and turned around. Liam shone his light back down the hallway. Sweet Jesus, he said. The monster's body looked at first like it was floating in the middle of the hallway. Then Sal saw that it had a mass of limbs reaching the floor, the walls, the ceiling, and it was scuttling after them. I'll take care of this, Grace said. She blurred, met the monster in midair, tackled it to the floor. Sal couldn't see Grace at all, just the monster's limbs being flung in every direction. Sal, Liam said. Sal turned toward the archives. Another monster moving slower than the first. Yeah, Liam said, raising Fox's sword. Yeah, Sal said. They charged down the hallway and plunged their blades in the beast up to the hilt, pulled them out and plunged again. They knew Grace was almost done, wouldn't be far behind. Sal thought of her candle. How low was it burning now? The pounding had already begun against the vault's door. It sounded like the monsters were throwing themselves against it. The door shuddered, the hinges rattled and groaned, but it was holding. The vault was bathed in light from the crystal. Asante's hands were still aloft, her voice strong now, chanting through the spell on the page. Manchu looked at how much more she had to go. It seemed like a lot. But Asante's face was flush, radiant. In a part of the spell she seemed already to have memorized, she locked eyes with Manchu and smiled. Somehow she's enjoying this, Manchu thought. A loud bang from the door startled Manchu, and he turned back toward it. There was a bulge in the door pushing inward that hadn't been there before. 
a hair of a crack running down its middle. The top hinge was bending. He turned back toward Asante. Hurry, he thought, hoping somehow to communicate that to her. Asante's smile only got wider. Another bang from the door opened a small crack along the side, and now Manchu could hear just how intense the howls were becoming. The cries flooded around the door's edges, bounced off the walls, filled the room. Asante's voice rose. Her feet left the floor. The crystal glowed brighter. The door took another hit, and the first tendrils of a monster wrapped around its edges. They were starting to tug. Mingled in with the howls, Manchu could hear human voices shouting. He knew who they were. His team, his people, his family were right outside. The door popped off its hinges and three monsters surged into the vault. Grace, Sal, and Liam were in pursuit, but the creatures were faster. Manchu brought his arm to his face, a reflex, as Asante finished her spell with a flourish. The crystal flashed and a wave of energy coursed through the air. The monsters that had been galloping across the floor lost their legs beneath them, slid toward Manchu, and stopped right in front of him. Grace halted as the wave passed over her, wobbled on her feet. She looked at Asante, her face filled with accusation. What the fuck? She said and listed to one side. Sal caught her as she fell and brought her to the floor. She'll wake up soon, Asante said with far too much confidence, Manchu thought. She waved her hands at the creatures on the floor. Make sure these things don't. Sal and Liam wasted no time, and within seconds the floor was slick with demon blood. The grand hall of the library smelled like blood. The surviving acolytes were still finding it everywhere. Spatters on the spines of books, dried smears on the floor. They'd lost so many people. Sal imagined that some of them would want out of the society after this. That even if the world were being overtaken with magic and they were probably still in one of the safest places on the planet to deal with it, they'd take their chances somewhere else. Sansoni was on the phone with Shaw. Sal and Asante were both close enough to hear that the connection was terrible, as if Shaw hadn't quite gotten away from the magic enough for the call to come in clear. They could also hear that Shaw sounded exhausted, even more than they remembered. Sal thought of how much she'd seen Team One on the news. They were always saving towns and setting building-sized monsters on fire now. A week ago, a reporter got Shaw on camera. She was in her armor. The reporter was wearing a parka covered in phlegm. Behind them, in the dark, the camera caught part of a carcass of what looked like an enormous hairy bug. Do you think there's any end to these attacks? The reporter asked and Sal saw anger flash across Shah's face, an anger that she controlled. She sighed. What the hell kind of question is that? She'd said. It was a statement that went viral. Some people read optimism into it, and Sansoni encouraged them. Shaw meant that, of course, she sees an end to the attacks, Sansoni said at a press conference. We all do. Why else would we keep fighting? But Sal knew Shaw well enough to know the truth. Shaw can't make it back here. Sansoni said as she got off the phone. The latest attack, Sal said. Continues, Sansoni said. Even though the Vatican itself, Asante started, they have their priorities, Sansoni said, and they have their orders. From who, Sal said, Fox is dead. Sansoni raised an eyebrow. You think the vast bureaucracy of the Vatican doesn't have an alternate chain of command set up for this kind of thing? 
I'm just saying you seem awfully calm about being unprotected, Asante said. It is my job to be calm, Sansoni said. Sal and Asante exchanged a glance, like both of them smelled something. They planned to head to Alexandria, as the Oracle had instructed them. The flight was leaving soon, and the bookburners, at last, had a few hours to rest. Sal and Grace lay spooning on a narrow bed in the catacombs of the society. Centuries ago, it had been for the monks in the society who never left the Vatican. Over the years, it had changed. Some monks chose not to leave. Some of the members of Team One liked to be on call. But lately, the room had been empty. Dark. Which was just what Sal and Grace had wanted. But Sal could feel the tension in Grace's shoulders and back, a stiffness beyond her latent strength. What's wrong? Sal asked. Sal, Grace said. I know I'm the strongest on the team. Human weapon, rips demons in half, that sort of thing. But in the end, I'm just a tool, a foot soldier. Is this about your cure? Sal said. No, Grace said. It's about you. We all know that Manchu has handed you the leadership of our team. You've been calling the shots since you came back from New York, maybe before that. If you resent that, I'll give it up now, Sal said. You've been doing this for so much longer. You have a good head for it, and I don't want anything like that to come between us. It's not that, Grace said. I know how clear I've made it that I won't be just a tool, but I also know that I like being a foot soldier. I don't want to be in charge. It's my job to kill monsters, and I excel at it. I like someone else pointing me at which monsters. It keeps the lines of logic clear. It keeps things simple. It means I rest easier at the end of the day. You're not resting easy right now, Sal said. Because I have to know that the decisions being made about where to send me are solid. Sal bristled. Are you saying you don't trust me? Now Grace turned over to face her. It's not that, she said. Then what is it? Sal said. I'm not explaining this well, Grace said. I suggest you start. Manchu just has so much faith in you. And you don't? That's not what I mean. It sounds like that's exactly what you mean, Sal said. Being a leader involves, please don't say making hard decisions, Grace, because I know that already. Everybody knows that. The problems we're facing are not getting smaller. The decisions are going to get harder and harder. Did you ever doubt Arturo can make them? Sal said. Grace paused. Sal braced for the answer. No, Grace said. So what's different? Sal felt the spike of anger and let it get the better of her. What exactly do you have between you? There is nothing, Grace said. Nothing now. Then what is it? Listen, Grace said. She slapped her hand on Sal's arm, dug in her fingers, and it hurt. This whole conversation has gone wrong. You're damn right it has. Then let's stop talking about it. No way, Sal said. One of us could die tomorrow. I need to know you're with me. Sal, Grace said. I'm with you as long as you'll have me. Then what the hell is wrong right now? I, Grace said and stopped. She closed her eyes, opened them again, released her grip on Sal's arm. I don't know how to say it. They were leaving for Alexandria in an hour. 
Grace turned back over and wrapped herself in Sal's arms, but there was no comfort in it. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. There's something weird going on with influencers right now. I'm a little freaked out. They just get everything they want. Everything's a little too perfect. Their smiles are a little too straight. They're using filters I can't find anywhere. I know what I'm about to say might sound a little unhinged, but I think it might be witchcraft. At least, that's what Jenna Clayton thought right before she went missing. We're excited to introduce a new show from Realm, If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It, starring Oscar-nominated actress Gabourey Sidibe. When a Black writer goes missing, a white podcast host with a savior complex takes up the cause of finding her and collides with a coven of influencers she suspects are responsible. This show is a little bit of the craft meets Mean Girls meets Get Out. Learn more about If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>